Well, today uh, we're going to take a look at an incident in, in the life of Jesus. That was his first miracle. Uh, and it took place at a wedding. Uh, and we're going to learn about the joy of an abundant life that Jesus gives to us. We're going to talk about weddings. Uh, we all know, I think, that some strange things can happen at weddings. Uh, that day uh, that both bride and groom have dreamed about for a long time, that they want everything to go perfectly, always has something, usually has something to happen, from some kind of minor thing to something maybe a little bit more major. You know, from a, a dropped ring to a fainting uh, groomsman, which uh, I did have in one occasion. And just as I finished a prayer and looked up, I saw on my far right, the groomsman just went right off the side. He just in a, in a dead faint. And the strange thing was, what was funny to me, and I had to keep my composure, was that it wasn't in this church, it was another church, was the church was packed, and even to the front row, and he just fell right in front of a lady and hit his head, fortunately, on a on a padded pew, and she just kind of moved him over to the side, and we just went right on with the ceremony. Later on, he woke up and kind of looked around and wondering where he was. Uh, the most interesting one, I think, that happened here uh, was that I just had a nervous groom, and I have never seen a more nervous groom. It was just pouring sweat. He was pacing as nervous as he could be. I thought he was going to pass out. So I said, why don't you go back, back here to the restroom and just splash some cold water on your face? And I said, then you, you know, you'll feel better. So he, he went to the restroom, and he stayed, and he stayed, and he stayed. And it was about time for us to go out, and I was getting ready to go look for him when he came walking out. And when he got close enough, I could see he had a perfect circle right in the center of his forehead. And I thought, this is the mark of the beast on this guy. Where did this come from? I said, what did you do? Where did that come from? He said, well, I, w I went to lean over the sink to splash water on my face like you told me to. And he said, I, I just so nervous, I went down so fast, I hit my head right on top of the spigot. But all the way through the ceremony, he had that circle on his forehead, and the bride just kept looking at him. So I wondered, how did that happen off the speaker? So I went back to the restroom after the service, and I looked at it. If you look at the top of the, the, the cold water and hot water faucet, there is that way. It's, a, it's not a knob on top of it, but it does have kind of like a washer-looking thing. And it, and it would, I guess, make an imprint of a circle if you hit it hard enough. Now, this didn't happen to me at a wedding that I was doing, but one of the worst things that I've heard of was of a nervous best man who was supposed to read Scripture. And he was supposed to read 1 John 4, 18, which says, There is no fear in love, for perfect love cast out fear. But he got confused, and instead he read from John 4, 18, Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well. And this is what he read. You have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. That wasn't here either. Well, this morning when we look at our scripture in John 2, verses 1 through 11, we see that the scripture takes us and Jesus and his disciples and the mother of Jesus to a wedding, and they had a big problem. So we begin reading uh, in chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, and that means the third day after these immediately preceding events, and that's the call of Philip and Nathaniel, on the third day a wedding took place at Cana, in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. 
And nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Now, we, you've probably read this. I've, I don't know how many times I've read that account, and I always think about every wedding that I've done. And nothing like that has ever happened, but it's an interesting story. It's the first miracle that Jesus performs, and it's one of the seven signs that John records uh, about Jesus in the gospel that always point to, towards him uh, as the Messiah. Uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there, and Jesus and the disciples, he said, the scripture says, has been invited. And there's been a lot of speculation about Mary's role, why Mary was there and why Jesus and the disciples were invited. Some have thought that perhaps it was the marriage of, of a relative from the family, and even some have speculated it might have been one of the sisters of Jesus because they're never named in the Scriptures at all. And we do know that through Joseph and Mary, there were other children that were brought into that family. And we find something about some of the brothers, or stepbrothers, a little bit later on uh, throughout the life of Jesus. But the other speculation was that maybe Mary had some kind of part to play, kind of like a hostess or some sort there at the wedding as to why she would take notice of the fact that the wine had run out and she turned to Jesus and said, uh, they're out of wine. They don't have any wine. Well, weddings were a big deal back in that day, and they still are today even. Uh, I think we make them more and more elaborate all the time. But in that day in the Jewish custom and society, there was a certain protocol that was followed. If the bride was a virgin, then the wedding took place on Wednesday and it could last for six or seven days. If the bride was not a, a, a virgin, if she'd been a widow, then the wedding came on Thursday and wasn't quite as elaborate. Then the wedding ceremony would take place late in the evening after a time of feasting. And the father of the bride would take the bride on his arm and he would walk her all through that little village or town or wherever they lived, all through the streets so that as many people as possible could see them and, and wish them well. Now this is the part I don't understand and I've never traced it as to how this got changed. But then they would end up at the, at the front door of the groom's house, and the ceremony would actually take place there. A and the groom and his family were responsible for the feast that followed. Now, I don't know where that got changed, whether that's the bride's family's responsibility. But somewhere along the line, that changed. And those of us who've had daughters to get married, we know that that could be an ouch at times, right? Well, though that was no short ceremony. Because after the ceremony itself and the exchanging of the vows, then the entire bridal party, with the groom and the bride leading the way and their attendants carrying a canopy over their head, would go back all through the city streets so that people, could, again, could wish them well. And then at the end of the evening, they would come back home, not necessarily for a honeymoon, but they would keep open house for a week or so. And they would just enjoy company coming in and out, and they would dress in their finest, and they would entertain people. Sometimes they even wore crowns upon their head. 
And again, it was the groom's family responsibility to provide all the refreshments for this week of festivities. In this wedding, suddenly there came uh, a, a, a difficulty, a tragedy of sort, and that was they were running out of wine. Maybe they had more guests than they thought, or maybe they were drinking more uh, than they normally did. And it would have been a terrible uh, and improper thing to have taken place according to the culture of the Jewish society in that day. In fact, some scholars have said uh, that the host could actually have been sued for a breach of hospitality to his guest. I guess maybe if you go to a wedding reception today and you don't like the stuff, I guess maybe you think, well, maybe I can sue them for this. It wouldn't surprise me in this day and age if somebody didn't try that. Now, they did drink the wine, but there was uh, strictly forbidden through Scripture drunkenness. Uh, in fact, even the rabbis would say about the wine, they would say without wine, there is no joy. And as usual, fresh wine was served at the weddings. And some scholars say it was not the kind that had been kept around and had aged for a long period of time. But again, drunkenness was forbidden, and the Scriptures commanded against it. Uh, through the years, I've done some research and studied this, and what, what exactly was this wine? And in some places, it tells us there were four different types of wine during that time in the New Testament. One was a type of vinegar, the type that they tried to give Jesus on the cross. Another was a sweet new wine that is said to be a stronger drink. Like in Acts 2.13 that the disciples were accused of having drunk and being drunk early in the morning when actually they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Then there was an intoxicating grain wine that really was strong drink. And then there was the grape wine that was only slightly alcoholic. And scholars have said this is the wine they think that was being served at this Jewish wedding. And it was the kind that they ran out of. And then since it was drunk in large quantities... It was usually mixed with water, two or three parts of water to one part of wine. And it was done so for two reasons. One, to prevent drunkenness. They watered it down. But the other was because there was no real pure water system in that day. Most of the time that they, they had to drink the wine because the water was just not really good to drink. You know, like when you go visit in a foreign country today, you know, a third world country, what is always the last words of advice you get? Don't drink the water. Well, that was part of the problem with it. That's why they sometimes also, they mix the wine with water so it would kind of purify that. Now, now we'll take a sidetrack just for a moment. And always this brings up uh, the question that, that I'm asked all the time, and a lot of people ask the question, and some people don't even bother to ask it. It doesn't bother them. But always they ask the question, is it wrong for a Christian to drink wine or other alcoholic beverages? And rather than just giving you a long argument about it, let me just answer it this way and say, it's unnecessary. And let me tell you three reasons why it's unnecessary. Well, number one, uh, we have an abundance of pure water. Uh, bottled water is something that's really called on. And there's abundance of pure water that you can drink and plenty of other beverages that you can drink. Number two, if you have an abundant life in Jesus Christ, if you have a relationship with Christ and he's given you abundant life and filled you with the Spirit, why do you need to fill your body with an alcoholic beverage that has the potential of affecting your mind and body in dangerous ways? And number three, it's unnecessary because why would you want to do anything that might cause your life to be a stumbling block for a weaker brother? Now, we'll put that aside and we'll go back to the rest of the story. I just add that into that. I mean, I don't think at this wedding 
And every time that Jesus sat down with the disciples, it was happy hour because that's not what it was. You know? So we go back to the story. They're starting to run out of wine. Mary notices it. She turns to Jesus and she says, you know, they're running out of wine. And you look at verse 4, Jesus gives a, a strange answer. In some translations, it's like woman, like it's a harsh word. It's the same word and same address that he gave to his mother from the cross when he said, woman, behold your son, and he pointed, nodded his head towards John. But the NIV says, dear woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. When you study the text, it literally is, is, is meaning that Jesus is saying to her, well, what do we have in common? Which is a strange thing, I think, unless you start to look back at Mary and say, did she have a role then of some kind of role being like a hostess? And maybe she was uh, in charge of uh, seeing about the wine and she was standing near the wine dispensary or whatever it was and she noticed they were running out. And so when Jesus says, what do we have in common? Why do you want to involve me? It was like saying, you know, it's not time for me yet. Well, you and I don't have responsibility. It's not my responsibility. But then Mary turns to the servants and says what? Do whatever he tells you. I guess she knew her son and she knew that he would do something. And he responds by performing the first miracle of turning the water into wine. See, Jesus saw an opportunity to begin the process of revealing who he was as the Messiah. And again, we say in John's Gospel, this was the first of the seven signs that pointed towards him as being the Messiah. And the result of it was that the bridegroom and his family had their need met. The glory of Jesus was revealed. He gave evidence that he was the Messiah, revealed his power. And then the third thing is that the faith of the disciples was strengthened. There's several different artists' rendition of this scene and potential of how it could have looked. I think we've got some of those paintings. Some of them go from some very elaborate uh, uh, design of the wedding to, I think we've got three different ones to show you as to what it might show just simply with, uh, uh, you see the light there even coming in the center. And uh, you can see in, in clearer pictures of it the, the abundance of the water pots all, all around that they would have had. So what do we learn from, uh, from this first miracle uh, of Jesus? You know, what can we take away about the joy of the abundant life? Well, I think there are three things to notice. You know, first of all, Jesus meets our need with the joy of his presence. See, in this story, Jesus was concerned about a family being embarrassed at a wedding reception. And his actions tell us that he cares about our every need, every situation in life. And he has power to bring joy into our life through all of those situations. His actions tell us that he's concerned about us, our every need, every situation, and he always wants to bring joy into our life. In fact, in John 15, 11, Jesus says, These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. Jesus is the God of irrepressible joy, and he has come to share it with us. And he brings joy into our lives with the assurance that he takes care of our needs, all of them, big and small. You know, just as we say there's nothing too ordinary or too small or too common to pray about, there's nothing too small nor insignificant in our life that God is not concerned about and that Jesus is not concerned about. 
You know, he sees every sparrow that falls to the ground. He take, keeps track of the number of the hairs on your head. He calls the stars by name. He is the great God who is not too big to be concerned about the everyday things in your life. About the time that um, I think Jesus was moving into this crowd and into this miracle, I think he was dealing with an issue that we deal with a lot in our, in our culture today, too. It's a disease. And it's not like hypertension or heart disease or cancer, but it's a disease of being afraid that we're uncared for, that we're, we're unwanted, or the fear of being deserted and the fear of being alone. But the presence of Jesus at that wedding in Cana of Galilee and the actions that he took reassure us of the fact that God's presence is in every situation of our life at all times. Jesus said in John 14, 18, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. In Hebrews 13, 5 through 6, he makes this promise. I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. That God is involved in our life in every circumstance and in every way that he needs to. Because he's the God who holds the world together with his loving and powerful hands. He knows your need as he knows my need even before we express it to him. He is the God who wants to be involved in our life and in that process, he wants to be involved in our life because he wants to bring joy into our life no matter what the need is. And he is the God who brings to us the joy of abundant life through his presence in our life. Then another observation is this. Not only does Jesus meet our every need with the joy of his presence, but Jesus transforms our life with the joy of his power. We know from the story that when the wine at the reception ran out, Jesus transformed the water into wine. Now, maybe we can make an analogy to your life. Maybe the joy level in your life is running out today, or you're running low on that joy level of the abundant life. And you're sitting here today, and you're saying, it's going to take a miracle to renew my abundant life and the supply of joy in my life. Well, the reassurance and the message, the good news for you today is Jesus is here, and he wants to work a miracle in your life. He wants to restore that joy in your life. No matter what the threat to your joy might be, whether it's a a health issue, or whether it's your marriage, maybe it's uh, parenting issues you're struggling with, maybe you're at that age that you're dealing with children on one side and you've got parents still on the other side you're dealing with and you still are part of that sandwich generation. Maybe it's a struggle for identity and meaning just wondering, where do I fit in? Where do I fit in in all of this? Maybe it's a hurt that you're having difficulty releasing. Maybe it's a grief that you're still stuck with and you just really can't work through it. You you haven't been able to come to that point of accepting it yet. Or maybe it's just a general attitude about life, that life is not fair. And I think we've all learned by now, no matter how old we are, life is not fair. But that's why we need God in our life, and that's why he's here. And that's why Jesus the Messiah has come to transform our life with the joy of his power. See, God is in the transformation business. 
He wants to give new meaning and purpose to our life. He wants to give us a new attitude, a new life, a new heart. He wants to transform us with the joy of his power and make us new people in Christ. See, Jesus literally changed the water into wine and the shame of the the husband's family here was turned to joy. And it's a reminder to us that he revealed his glory and the disciples put their faith in him. It's also a reminder to us that what Jesus really came to do was to transform people. So when you got all these water pots there, they were there basically for the Jewish ceremonial service of, of washing and being ceremonially clean. And most of that water was probably gone out of those pots because they had used it to wash, maybe their hands, maybe their feet. They needed to be ceremonially clean to take place, take part uh, in this wedding feast. That's why Jesus had them to fill the water pots to the brim. And then he transformed the contents. That water in those jars became new wine. And it's a symbol of God's grace that comes into our life that transforms us. But Jesus gives us a new life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 reminds us that therefore if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. See, and Jesus is all about transformation. Not just water into wine through this story, but he turns frowns into smiles. He turns whimpers of fear into songs of hope. He turns deserts into gardens. He turns sorrow into joy. He turns sin into grace. He turns death into life. See, Jesus is all about the transforming power of changing people's lives. That's what it's all about. And then the final observation I think we can make is that Jesus gives abundant life with the joy of his provision. You see, we look at that story and we see that there were six jars contained between 20 and 30 gallons apiece. So at the very least, the jars contained 120 gallons of wine or as much as 180 gallons. That's a lot of wine. I don't know whether they drank it all or not. But why was it in such abundance? It's because Jesus is an extravagant giver. And he always gives super abundantly. It's the abundant life that he gives to us. In John 10.10, Jesus says in the NIV, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Other translations call it that abundant life. And what does that mean for us? Well, it means that God's grace is adequate to provide everything we need in life. And it's because God gives to us abundantly. In Romans 8, 37, the Apostle Paul reminds us that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. See, there's really no measure to God's provision because there will always be enough of God's grace and power and peace to meet our needs no matter what they are. See, God is not just the God of the required. He's the God of abundance. Paul reminds us of that again in Ephesians 3.20 where he says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more 
than all we ask or imagine according to his power that it is in work within us. And John 1.16, John reminds us that from the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. You see, when we look at our life, we can either think that, that we are lacking in things that, that we should have from God or with eyes of faith, see God as the God of extravagance and know that he has blessed us beyond what we deserve. With every spiritual blessing, he has blessed us because he is the God of extravagance. And when we look at Jesus in this story, we see that Jesus is the Messiah who brings God's blessing of abundant grace into our lives. So we go back to make the application for us here today. So what about you today? If you're a believer in Christ and a follow after Christ, where's the joy level in your life? If you come here today and you feel like maybe the joy level in your life has diminished, then remember that Christ is here and he wants to bring his presence into your life that will bring the joy of his presence that you need in your life. To be reminded of the fact that you have a relationship with God. He fills you with the Holy Spirit. And in that process, you become a new person. And he gives to you the abundant life. And when you have that abundant life in him, then your joy is at a great level. Or maybe you're here today as a non-believer. You've not yet chosen to follow after Christ. Christ is still here today. And his presence is here to work the miracle of transformation in your life. That miracle of grace that can transform you from a sinner into a saint. That miracle of joy where he can take all of your sins and all of your, all of your uh, guilt and shame and transform that into joy and give to you the new nature and the new life and that abundant life that he gives to you. Jesus is the Messiah who gives to us the joy of the abundant life. All we have to do is to claim it, to ask for it, because he gives it to us in abundance. If that's your need today, then I pray that you will ask for that and receive that joy of the abundant life that God gives to you in his grace through Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for revealing to us in the ways that you choose to do so through Scripture and other means that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. He is your Son, and he is the giver of life as he transforms us through his power and through his presence. Help us as believers today to, to be aware of your presence in our life in such a way that we're filled with your joy. And, Father, if there are those who are unbelievers today who have not yet come to make that decision to find Christ in their life and to experience that wonderful joy and that peace that comes from having Christ in their life, that they can know that they're free from their sins and the guilt and shame that it brings, and they can be set free to live that abundant life, then may they see that Christ today. May they respond to that Christ today. May they come to Jesus today in faith and accept him and discover the joy of the abundant life through Jesus Christ our Savior and our Lord. And fathers, in his name I pray and ask for decisions. In the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.